Howdy, y'all. It is Progressive News Network for Sunday, September 13, 2020. I am your host, Brooke Hines. And what a show we have for you tonight. We have Rick Spizak chatting with Janine Economos of the Florida Farm Workers Association. Janine Moloff with the Justice Report has is bringing on Elijah Foggy to talk about Black Lives Matter and the Expect Us movement um, and to dispel some, uh, some narratives that have been out there. So we want to talk about what activists are really doing instead of what people want you to think they are doing for whatever reason they would like you to think that. Um, there's just a lot going on this week. You know, this, this, this was uh, September 11th, you know, was part of this whole weekend. Uh, so we had the 19th uh, year since the uh, attack on the World Trade Center and all of that. And uh, so our news cycle was um, devoted somewhat to that. We also have fires out um out west it seems like the whole western united states is on fire i've got lots of friends out in oregon and washington northern california and um it looks like it looks like an apocalypse out there and um, people are having trouble breathing you can't get away from the smoke and then for the people who have been uh, literally affected by the fires that's total destruction that's just um, there's nothing in its wake. So the fires this year are the worst that we've ever seen following last year, which were the worst that we had ever seen up until then. At this point, we cannot, we can no longer deny what's going on with climate change. And at the same time, it was just announced that there is a famous climate denier who is going to be in charge of uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, association, I guess that's the last A in NOAA. Um, yeah, so that's great. You know, NOAA is going to be run by a, a climate science denier while the word world is on fire. So, you know, pretty much everything normal in uh, 2020 in, in Trump land. I came across a really interesting uh, statistic today. Uh, 52% of 18 to 29 year olds Okay, so so the cutoff is right before that 30 years old, you know, where you're officially an adult. Um, 52% of people between the ages of 18 and 29 still live with their parents. Um, and that is the highest since the Great Depression. And I would also add to this particular tidbit that what we had during the Great Depression was uh, nuclear families uh, clustering around other nuclear families, which were their grandparents and so on and so forth. So you had in back then you even had more natural clustering of, uh, of families, whereas now uh, there has been an undoing of you know, kids being able to go off and start their career in, you know, in a big city somewhere, that's all been curtailed and people are staying home. That is a huge sociological difference from, you know, what we had been seeing pretty much up until now. 
So this is this is just brand new. It's going to impact a lot of you know how we do things going forward. And of course, part of that is because of COVID. But the fact that so many people have been living at home, it, that has been uh, in existence since before COVID. COVID has just exacerbated it. And we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about. COVID-related this and that. I want to talk about uh, the uh, Latino outreach in Florida, which has been in the news this week. Um, I also want to talk about, uh, I have a, a, a local story. Washington Post did a story on motel dwellers on iDrive. And I also want to get into this uh, later in the uh, second segment. I'm going to get into what is going on with this Daily Beast article that was behind a paywall that was saying that the Russians were taking another swat at left-wing media? Notice that they only go after, <laughs> in this scenario, they only go after left-wing media. So that's super, super uh, convenient. Um, so listen, let's, uh, let's kick it off with this. DNC says Biden campaign's Hispanic outreach is vigorous, despite report to the contrary. <clears throat> this is a this is Fox News reporting. I want to contrast Fox News reporting with a couple of other outlets, but I thought that this was really interesting. That the DNC communication director um, uh, can't pronounce his first name, uh, Inahosa, was uh, was on uh, America's Newsroom. To I don't know why, but he went on America's Newsroom to talk about uh, Hispanic outreach in the campaign because there's been some reports that uh, that Biden is, especially in Florida, Biden is trailing uh, both uh, Obama's numbers and Hillary Clinton's numbers in terms of Hispanic support. Now, this is touched off all kinds of discussions about what you actually mean about when you talk about Hispanic outreach in Florida, because Florida isn't, Florida is unlike just about every other state with regard to our uh, demographic makeup uh, with Hispanic populations. So you've got, everybody's familiar with the um, Cuban community, which are mostly white wealthy Cubans that came to the United States as a means to protect property or, you know, whatever. Um, so they tend to be very conservative. <clears throat> There's also a, a, a dark underbelly um, that runs through there. Cuban. There's not a significant Cuban vote that the Democrats need to go after or have needed to go after in the past. Uh, there is an argument that perhaps the 
children of the people who came over in the first place. Perhaps they're uh, a little bit more democratic-leaning than their parents. Uh, we have yet to really see that completely play out in in the numbers. But, okay, so there's the Cuban community. You've also got the uh, uh, diaspora, the Puerto Rican diaspora. Uh, there's always been a large Puerto Rican uh, uh, um, community, especially in central Florida. Um, and then after the hurricane uh, a couple years ago, <clears throat> that exploded. So we've got a, 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 a growing, like a, like a growing's not the right word. Uh, explosion, growing, spawning, uh, blooming, blooming is a good word. Uh, so we have this blooming uh, uh, demographic of Hispanic, Spanish speaking, uh, Puerto Rican families that are in central Florida mostly in South Orange and Osceola County and then uh, Polk County. And then you go further into Polk County into agricultural area and you've got uh, Hispanic Spanish speakers from uh, Central America that um, some people might be uh, connected to agriculture out in Polk County, uh, that demographic votes vastly different than the first two that I mentioned. And then heard in like in between all of this, those are the major groups. And then peppered throughout, you have uh, Central and South American uh, families that have a lot of them, okay, are, are right wing because they came over uh, during political uh, upheavals and uh, probably had some power back home and came here, you know, when the tides turned and left-wingers got into, got into government. So you've got a lot of conservative Colombian, uh, Brazilian, uh, uh, Nicaraguan, El Salvador, you know, all of these little countries that we've been messing around in for so long, uh, from the banana wars and onward, you've got large diaspora of those folks here. Now, the reason why I'm laying all this out is that every single one of these groups have different, uh, have different needs and want different things from, from government. Some, some want nothing, you know, like, so the, this is not monolithic. You cannot look at the Hispanic vote in Florida as any kind of monolith. You can't just uh, say you're buying uh, Spanish language television ads and feel like you've covered the Hispanic vote in Florida. That's just not going to do it. Um, so what the Democratic Party has done is they've brought on, they brought back some uh, some people who have done consulting before with the party, most notably Christian Olvert. Uh, so we got this story from uh, Florida Politics that is uh, Christian Olvert headlines new Florida hires to help Joe Biden expand Hispanic outreach. In addition to Olvert, we have, um, and by the way, Christian Olvert, you're 
if you're a Democrat in Florida, you're probably familiar. Um, he runs a, uh, he's the president and founder of Edge Communications, which is a consulting firm out of South Florida. He's worked with the Florida Dems for many, many years, worked on many, many campaigns. Uh, he serves, currently serves as a senior advisor and top strategist for the Daniela Levine Cava Miami-Dade mayoral campaign. Uh, Olvert himself is a Nicaraguan um, uh, of Nicaraguan descent and formerly worked as a political director at the FDP. Among Albert's past clients were uh, Philip Levine, Miami Beach mayor, and current mayor Dan Gelber. He worked on Levine's run for governor last year before jumping over to Andrew Gillum's staff to handle Spanish language media. So Spanish language media is kind of his wheelhouse. Now, in addition to Olvert, we have Josh Romero, who will take on the title of Coalition's Strategic Advisor, Mariana Castro, who will bring her digital background in, uh, with her doing digital types of stuff, Chris Wills is a former Republican operative, that's interesting, uh, working on the Biden campaign. And Denise Lugo will also serve as a Hispanic vote director. Lugo's experiences with Puerto Rican outreach and will focus in uh, uh, Central Florida. Okay, so that's just a basic, that was just, you know, running down what's going on. That's, that's response to these to this polling that is showing that Joe Biden is, is lagging other Democratic presidential candidates in years past. This was reported on September 7. Um, that's five days ago. The first story about um, Hispanic outreach with Ina Hosa and Fox News, that was also five days ago. Here's the pattern, you know. So it was like six days ago is when this when this information started really circulating, and and grabbing people's attention. Now, this last piece I want to I want to bring to your attention is from Politico. Biden lags among Hispanic voters. New poll finds that the Democratic nominee is running behind Hillary Clinton's pace in the critical swing state. And I don't have a date on this, but these are all from right about the same time. Now, this is what has touched off a a lot of consternation within the party. Like uh, there are there are people who care about what is going on at the top of the ticket who are very, very concerned. And then there are people who are concerned about down ballot races who are also very concerned because here's, here's the dynamic. If voters aren't excited to come out and vote for Joe Biden, all right, then we're not going to have those numbers that we need to get these really, really good down ballot candidates, you know, pushed up and, and elected. We need that, that coattails. We don't need a negative coattails effect where if voters are turned off to the presidential election, they uh, are not available. They don't pay attention to their ballot and they're not voting the top of the ticket or down ballot. So that's, that's all very bad. So you've got consultants on all sides who are concerned about what is going on. Now, in the midst of this, uh, 
people have been looking towards Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, famously had uh, had done really well with Latino voters, and like that was part of his his winning formula was having Chuck Roca on his staff and um, being very very smart about their outreach in uh, in in the primaries. So. Let me play. I want to play a couple of clips. This uh, this first one kind of lays out what is what's the the chatter that's that's kind of going on behind the scenes. Have a listen. Uh, from the Washington Post, that Bernie Sanders is privately expressing concern about Biden's campaign. Sources telling the Post that Sanders has told associates, "quote Biden is at serious risk of coming up short in the November election if he continues his more vaguer, more centrist approach." Uh, do you think that sentiment is shared among members of the progressive wing of the party, or do you think it's a more broader concern? Where do you think this lands with Democrats? It's definitely something that I've heard talking to Democrats and also progressives in Congress. Uh, but you know, in, in some ways, it feels like the 2016 campaign never ended. Uh, we will still have this concern among the Bernie Sanders wing of the party uh, versus the Biden wing of the party about centrism versus progressivism and how exactly to handle that going into the general election. But what I think is more interesting is how uh, th this compares to what the Trump campaign is doing. The Biden campaign is waging this very uh, center-first, broad-based uh, campaign to try to appeal to the center and potentially disaffected uh, Republican voters, whereas the Trump campaign, as we saw in the clips aired a few moments ago, uh, is, is going for this, in, in many ways, very divisive, base-first mm -hmm. kind of campaign uh, to appeal to the president's own base. Okay, we'll leave it there, Nicholas, with this morning. We've got a, a few more things to break down with you, which we will do in the future. That is Nicholas. We were the Washington Post who wrote the article, one of the articles that has everybody talking. And he kind of lays out, you know, you kind of get a feel for what's sort of going on there. And what they're saying is uh, that there's chatter behind the scenes where where people are concerned. Now, uh Reports, uh, Here is a potential rift between Democrats. The Washington Post. Here is uh, here's another clip. This is actually MSNBC interviewing uh, Bernie Sanders, asking him the questions that were laid out in the Washington Post piece. Have a listen. Reporting the Democratic primary runner-up Bernie Sanders has expressed his concerns privately uh, over the Biden camp's approach to financial uh, or economic policy matters and their appeal to more progressive voters. Sanders, the independent Vermont senator, quote, has told associates that Biden is at serious risk of coming up short in the November elections if he continues his vaguer, more centrist approach, according to the people who spoke on the con condition of anonymity to describe sensitive talks. Senator Bernie Sanders joins me now. Good morning, Senator. Good to see you. Thank you for uh, joining me. You've obviously seen these reports. Uh, are they true? No, of course they're not true. I mean, look, what I have said privately is what I have said publicly. And that is, um, I think Biden is in an excellent position to win this election. Uh, but I think we have got to do more as a campaign than just uh, go after Trump. Trump is a disaster. I think most people know it. But we also have to give people a reason to vote for Joe Biden. And Joe has some pretty strong positions on the economy. Uh, and I think we should be talking about that more than we have. Now, we have done, Ali, 
eight battleground state uh, battleground states virtual rallies, talking to you know uh, several million people. Uh, and I think what people want to hear is what Joe is going to do to raise the minimum wage, and he supports <clears throat> a $15 an hour minimum wage. What he's going to do to make sure that we create millions of good-paying jobs in this country, and he has a very strong plan for the infrastructure. He knows that we can create jobs uh, combating climate change, which God knows uh, we need to do, seeing what's going on in the West Coast right now. Uh, they want equal pay for equal work. They want us to expand health care to as many people as possible, lower the cost of prescription drugs. I think those are some of the issues that people want to hear a little bit more from the Biden campaign about. And you're talking to a lot of these people in these town halls you're having. Is it the message they want more? So that's a good place to stop right there. He brings up. Well, there's a couple of things. So the way that the news is being reported, number one, is saying that, oh, my God, Bernie Sanders is like, uh, you know, shit talking Biden behind the scenes. And he dispels that. He says, no, that's not the case. I haven't said anything uh, to you uh, behind the scenes that hasn't been that I haven't talked about publicly. And, you know, for God's sakes, anybody who's, you know, paid any attention to Bernie Sanders and not even somebody who's paid attention to Bernie Sanders. Everybody knows that his thing is all about pocketbook issues. It's about the raising the minimum wage. It's about Medicare for all. It's about uh, uh, canceling student debt. All of these things that are impacting things. You know, I opened the show talking about 52% of young people ages 17 to 29 are living with their parents. That is the most people living with their parents since the Great Depression. And the reason why people can't lunch and can't get out and have lives right now as, you know, to, to, to make that transition from a young person living with your parents to an adult who is starting your own family, you can't do that. You can't buy a house. You can't get married and have kids when you've either, A, couldn't afford to go to college and therefore don't have an education to move on up, or B, went to college in order to move on up and you were saddled with a six-figure debt, okay? So <clears throat> that's problematic. Uh, I think that when Bernie Sanders talks about a $15 minimum wage here, that needs to be put into context. And that's where this story from the Washington Post about uh, what's going on in the uh, on iDrive, International Drive in Orlando. Now, this is uh, uh, 192. A lot of people know this road. It goes all up through the, the heart of the uh, attractions sprawl, you might say. So iDrive is kind of that strip where you've got all of these like mini attractions, you know, small attractions. So you got the, uh, these big giant rides that are like swings that, you know, are something fun, like bungee jumping to do on a date. You have all these theme restaurants and you have all these like tourist trap places and outlet stores, all of that kind of thing. But also along uh, I drive, what we call I drive, which is International Drive 192, you have Motel Row. 
and Motel Row is a notorious area for drug use and prostitution and all kinds of, you know, just bad stuff associated with that. And uh, uh, the reason why there was this kind of clustering of uh, social issues in that area is because there's all these little motor lodges there that over the years have transitioned from serving uh, kind of lower income vacationers to serving the people who work in the attractions who can't afford uh, or can't otherwise can't access any other kind of housing. So they're paying 40, 50, $60 a night for these, these roach motels, essentially. And uh, so Washington Post comes down here and does a story. Uh, it's entitled, An Economic Collapse Has Pushed Families Who Live in Orlando's Motels uh, Push Them to the Brink of Apocalypse. What's going on right now on Motel Row on iDrive in Orlando is nothing short of uh, you know, Mad Max kind of stuff. Uh, so they spend a lot of time in this article just get, you know, doing this narrative, the, you know, this kind of real uh, kind of literary, like, here's, here's what I saw, here's what it was like, and I, would, I, won't, I won't put you through <laughs> listening to all of that because it's, it's, it's really, really painful uh, what the story is. But here's, here's the, uh, here's the, uh, the short end of it. These motels have generated into shelters of last resort in, in the city. Now also Orlando has the lowest per capita in income and it's because of the attractions. So most of the people who are out here trying to, uh, trying to make a wage are working in the attractions and they're making maybe, maybe, nine dollars if you're lucky you're pulling down nine dollars an hour uh and so what's happened to these motels is that the owners have actually abandoned them like that's how bad it's become that the owners have abandoned these motels and just left these motels with uh all the residents that are in there and what are those residents like let's talk about that so you got you get a couple of people that you, you know, a couple of kinds of people that you would expect. So you got, you know, these, these like, you know, dudes who are d- dealing drugs, right? You always have that in this kind of situation. But, and I think people pay a lot of attention to that. And, and what I would rather you pay attention to is all of the seniors who are living there who uh, have serious chronic health issues are living on disability, you know, like $1,500 a month and are in chronic states of needing healthcare, chronic pain, chronic everything and have severe mobility issues. And these dirty, disgusting motels are the only place. I mean, it is the last resort. We've gone from resort town to last resort town. This is the last place on, on earth that, that these guys have to live. And then you've got the um, young families, you know, like, like what was, um, 
portrayed recently in the movie The Florida Project, which I think came out in 2017, which was Will- Willem Dafoe, who's a, uh, uh, born in Winter Park. He's an old Winter Park guy. Came down and did a really wonderful you know, movie about that uh, situation down there on Motel Row. Fantastic movie. If you remember any of it, you know, it's pretty grim. However grim it was in 2017, uh, take that to Mad Max territory and you've got what's going on now. So what's happening is uh, the, the no one's picking up the trash. The trash is just out of control at these places. A county commissioner called up a local mission to see if the local mission would help, would come and personally take the trash away. And there's a picture with the story of just this overflowing, this the, the dumpster, and then just piles of trash for days. And it's like, you know, it's food rotting and it's disgusting. And there's, you know, all kinds of um, vermin that's attracted to that. The uh, The particular motel, the Star Motel, had had their electricity turned off because like I said, the owner had abandoned the place. And so part of the story is talking about how the residents in the motel tried to meet, tried to pool their money to meet the electricity bill. Now, these are people who uh, are unable to live anyplace else, right? Like, because they're so poor. Uh, And here they are trying to pay a bill that's not their bill to pay your electricity is supposed to be included in you know when you're when you're at a at a motel but they come up with the money somehow they came up with the money they came up with the $1500 got the electricity turned on and the electric company turned it off again 5 days later so they only had that $1500 which was you know the last pennies these people had uh, one woman gave her last buck 88 you know it was it was the the change that she had sitting on the table she it's just heartbreaking just gave gave her last amount of, of money to uh uh and and so it only lasted it only lasted 5 days and this is what happens when when you're poor uh um it, it's really freaking expensive to to be poor everything costs more and you're all the time being hit with these um uh freak uh fees that that come out of nowhere now uh from the story they say uh you know the economy just keeps going up 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 and the minimum wage stays the same this is uh from uh one of the residents who lives in the mo- in one of the motels. This is the Star Motel on Highway 192. Uh, and this person says the economy just keeps going up, 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 and the minimum wage is staying the same. So how do they expect people to be able to pay their rent and pay for their car? That's why more people are ending up in these motels. There's not enough resources out there to help us be able to help ourselves. And when they say there's no resources out there, you know, it is – it is to the point where a county commissioner, Orange County commissioner, is uh, calling up. Well, it could be Osceola, uh, but a county commissioner is is begging people to help them take the trash away. So w- w- what's going on here? How come there isn't? How come there isn't? You know, a 
trash pickup. I mean, there's public works that actually do that. And I understand that, you know, waste management and these companies that are contracted with to pick up trash, that that's a, a, a closed system. But a county commissioner should have the power Somebody has to have the power to come along and clean these messes up when and as they occur. Now, one of the things that just uh, is so heartbreaking in this article is that um, the whole article is heartbreaking. All right. Um, What's happening at the Star uh, Motel uh, is that... uh, um, You've got people who are working in Burger Kings, uh, people who have who are young. Here's a woman who's 20 and pregnant, and she's earning nine dollars an hour at a Burger King. You have an older gentleman who's taking care, uh, who's supposed to be retired, but um, his his partner is disabled, and he's trying to support both of them. So he's out working two jobs. It, it, he has to work 90 hours a week to be able to afford to live in one of these roach motels. Um, the, uh, the way that people wind up in this situation, especially older people, is from a health crisis. So, and I've experienced this. Uh, this this was entirely my experience growing up because I grew up with my grandparents. And uh, right about the time I came along, my grandfather who adopted me, my father had a heart attack. And so the person earning money, all of a sudden that money wasn't there. And uh, there wasn't, there was a, as there often is, there is a situation with uh, uh, social security and uh, and disability coming in and filling the gap, and that didn't happen for over a year. We we didn't have any money to live on. We often didn't have any food. It was questionable if we were going to be able to even have a house to stay in. And as I read these stories, these people in the, in this motel, I was reminded of how close we were to that situation when I was growing up. It was. Um, it was uh, uh, quite. Um, it was it, it, it was uh, very touch and go. Uh, we shall shall we say. Um, so, you know, so you go back and forth. So you know, we started out talking about the Hispanic vote in in Florida and what and how that outreach is falling short, and. You have people talking about, oh, you need more uh, Spanish language advertising. That'll do it. But what you have going on in the ground on floor, in Florida, right here on the ground, is uh, uh, a despair and a, uh, a dilapidation that is systemic, and it's not going to go away with just some advertising here and there that's that's and that's not going to speak to the voters what the voters need to hear is that uh that somebody understands that they're being forgotten they need to hear that uh something can come along and help them out 
that uh, that uh, someone will be fighting for a higher minimum wage. That would be an immediate help for most of the people in these motels on on iDrive. They're dealing with nine dollars an hour. Uh, um, Income. If they had $15 an hour income, they could, you know, perhaps not have to work 90 hours a week to be able to to uh, pay their rent. Um, and maybe they would be able to some of these people would be able to have a little bit of time to take care of their children and or uh, partners who are suffering from chronic disease. So here's the story that really broke my heart. Um, uh the story follows a, a, a woman, who, a young woman whose name is Rose. And uh, Rose's grandmother was working as a manager at the Roadway Inn. And they all lived in a small house in Poinciana. Poinciana is a cute, you know, kind of a suburban sprawl area on the southwest side of, of Orlando. She said, we thought we'd live there forever. But her grandmother suffered a heart attack, and the family's income shrank to about $2,000 a month, the sum of her mother's and her grandmother's disability checks. Home became a series of motel rooms. Rose celebrated her 15th birthday at the Duo Boutique Hotel. Her parents couldn't afford a present for her that year, so her stepfather, an amateur tattoo artist, offered his services as a gift, and he said, um, don't get anything stupid and don't put it anywhere anyone can see it. Uh, so she picks out, she picks out a, a Bible verse and the one she picks out is, um, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that is, uh, Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. And her stepfather inked it on her back for Quincenera. Um, her plan after she finished high school was to enlist in the Air Force. She had visited Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia with her high school's uh, junior ROTC program, and she thought it was like heaven. Uh, she thought it was like heaven because she hadn't seen the resources that were any kind of resources such as were available at this uh, military base. She said the gyms where the troops lifted weights and played basketball were bigger than any she had seen. The meals were cheap and plentiful. She said she got a plate and figured it was going to be at least $13, but it was only $2. I'm mentioning this because this is the level, this is where people are at, you know, where, you know, being able to afford food is mind blowing. Walking into a a space where people can play basketball and it's clean and safe, that's mind blowing. Okay, uh, it's really hard for those of us who are middle class and have, you know, some of us have never known anything but middle class. Uh, some of us, like me, have definitely known not being middle class i know what it's like to be on the fringes and i also know that any time you know anyone can end up there it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what your education is it doesn't matter uh you, you know how much money you're making today 
something can happen, and that something is usually a uh, health issue. Uh, there's a lot of heart attacks in this story. There's a lot of cancer in this story. Uh, people who, families who deal with uh, people who die of heart attacks, it appears to me, are far better off than people whose family members have uh, uh, have to deal with cancer because that is something that that uh, carries on for many years, and the treatments are very expensive, and. Uh, uh, one of the one of the couple that wound up in this uh, motel actually got there because uh, of a uh, of a cancer situation where they had fought the cancer for like ten years and it had wiped out all of their savings. They sold their house, so on and so forth, and that's what happens. And that is why the Bernie Sanders uh, slate of uh, of issues was bringing people to the table because Medicare for all is would would have stopped a lot of these folks from winding up in this motel and having a higher minimum wage would stop a lot of people from winding up in these in the nastier situations of these motels. I mean, make no mistake, $15 an hour is still not a very good wage, but at least at least you might be able to afford to live. There are actually uh, rules in Orlando. Most of these uh, uh, apartment complexes, the big ones that are, you know, have management companies, they will not take you unless you can prove that you make more than $25 an hour. Just will not, you will not pass their um, application process. You must make $25 an hour. And I challenge you to find anyone working in the attractions who are making $25 an hour. It just doesn't happen. So what I'm saying is that uh, Central Florida is ground zero for uh, the uh, the economic apocalypse. And if the headspace that the uh, politicos are approaching this with is, um, oh, more Spanish language television advertising, uh, then you've already lost the game. You know, what needs to happen to reach people in, in, in central Florida, which I can speak to because that's my experience. Uh, you need to talk about economic issues and you need to be serious and you, uh, and you need to treat people with respect because we, we know when we're being bullshitted. We know when people are just like, Oh, Hey, you know, when you're being glad handed and I'm going to get your vote. Right. And then, and you're like, I don't know. I kind of need, a higher minimum wage and it's like and Biden says oh well uh, maybe you got to vote for the other guy then you know like that's that's been the way that, that Joe Biden does that that's not going to work he's got to change some stuff and he's got to get some people on the ground who can seriously address these issues and do it in a way that's credible and recognizes the dignity of people who are um, dealing with these with these crises all right that is, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that right there, and come back in just a second.
Okay, you guys following along on the uh, Central Florida um, lower end of the economic uh, scale and people who are working really, really hard to, uh, you know, put put food on the table and make ends meet. I want to play for you this uh, interview that Rick has, di- has done with uh, Jenny Anaconomos, who is a frequent uh, guest of the show, and uh, she has a, an ask for our listeners. So I've got a link in the show notes. Uh, to a uh, fundraiser for the uh, Florida Farm Workers Association. Really important group. They're doing such good work. But uh, let's check in with them and see what is going on. You're doing the best stuff that humans do. You're helping people. And that's uh, beyond laudable, my dear. Beyond laudable. Well, Well, thank you for that, but it's really the farm workers whose work is laudable. And, um, you know, the I, I I feel like, you know, um, I I I would rather be the invisible one and let them be visible because they've been invisible for too long. So it's what it's all about is making what they do visible and to really um, give them three dimensions. You know, a lot of uh, it's just frustrating that some people just think, oh well, a farm worker it's a category. It's not like real people with vibrant, real, three dimensional important lives and so um the important thing is to make them visible and and their contributions visible well that being said let me go ahead start the interview formally and say ladies and gentlemen i am honored to have tonight miss janie economos who is with the farm worker association and jean what's your title dear uh, Pesticide Safety and Environmental Health Project Coordinator. Fantastic. It is. And, and what what's even bigger than that is the responsibilities that come with that and the good work that you do. There are so many topics I want to talk about in this uh, age of COVID, which makes hard work even harder and more dangerous. So let me let me raise a few questions with you, and I'd like you to talk about what what this last year uh, so far has meant to the agricultural working community. Um, first thing I want to mention is we know the stresses that these good people face every day from the long working hours to uh, inadequate, healthy uh, working place to work in, uh, exposure to herbicides and pesticides, uh, and uh, spraying that is rarely within legal bounds, as weak as those legal bounds are. And then add on top of that, the immigration woes and the slipshod half, halfway uh, measures where the government is imposing all these additional crazy rules and enforcement situations. And then add to that the COVID challenges where we have, on the one hand, the American voice says, you're essential workers, you're providing food, and on the other hand, makes their lives so difficult. Sheeny, tell us a little bit about what COVID has meant in 2020 to the farm working community. Well, first of all, let me say that um, I listen to the news all the time, and I have to laugh 
I hear uh, people on the news saying, you know, we have to find something to do with ourselves because we're inside all the time, and so people are turning to cooking and quilting and all these other things and, and, and doing projects around the house because they have so much extra time on their hands. And I just have to laugh because, if anything, the farm workers and the farm worker association are busier than ever. We're working around the clock trying to address what's happening with uh, COVID and how it's affected the community. And um, it's just a nonstop um, of, for, for all of us. Um, for the farm workers, you know, they've been called essential workers, but they're treated like they're expendable and exploitable, not essential. And our community has felt the effects of, as you mentioned, of COVID and pesticide exposure. And on top of all that, we have uh, heat. In Florida, the heat has been absolutely brutal. And I don't know how they do it, um, working in this heat, especially in the greenhouses. And in California, I'm sure everybody's heard about the fires and farm workers having to work through the fires and trying to work with the mask on to protect themselves from COVID and having to be in close proximity to fires and being pressured to keep on harvesting because the crop needs to get out and the grower doesn't want to lose their 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 money their crop their money from their crops so um it's really a a terrifying situation for individuals and families and um we have been working on the state level trying to get some of these things addressed on the in the state of Florida which has been pretty much a non-starter um, and then on the national level, we've been advocating for the HEROES Act to get passed and several other pieces of legislation to try and get protection for all farm workers, especially undocumented workers. But we know what's happening in Congress, which is pretty much nothing. Um, and so what we're doing right now is trying to deal with um, emergency situations like food and clothes and masks and, and COVID testing and, um, uh, you know, just trying to get them uh, um, housing assistance and rent and utilities. So um, our job is uh, busier than ever, and um, we just have to respect the work of these people and then try and do things that will actually make a difference in their lives. And, and we have our Governor DeSantis making pejorative remarks about this community when in fact these are people that we are depending on and instead of providing additional resources, he is using his bully pulpit to to lay more trouble on their heads. Yes, that was quite an outrage. Um, um, our executive director made several comments to the news media about that. Um, but luckily um, there was a lot of backlash against the governor's comment. Um, because um, he basically was blaming the farm workers for spreading the virus um, and for spikes in the cases of, um, you know, of, the vi- of positive cases of the virus, when actually the farm workers, it's terrible. They tell us that they will go work and they might get a clean mask the first day of work that's supposed to last the whole week. Well, if anybody's been outside their door, they know how hot it is, 
And if you're wearing a mask and you're outside and you're not in air conditioning, that mask is dripping wet within an hour, if not sooner. And it gets dirty because you're outside working with plants and in the fields or in the case of the um, the, the poultry, the meat pr- processors, you know, they're in a, a cool environment, but what they're dealing with is just horrendous and there's no real social distancing. So they're given um, a mask um, that's supposed to last a whole day and it doesn't even, I mean, last a whole week and it doesn't even last a whole day. So we have been going out to the nurseries and to the fields and giving masks to people. Um, if uh, We've been doing big food distribution um, in our office in Apopka. Once a week we um, get food from a local food bank and feed about 200 to 250 families. Um, our other office in Pearson feeds about 150 families a week, and our other offices are distributing food as well. So we're, you know, but that's, it, and that's wonderful. That's great. But, you know, it's, I've been doing this work a long time. And you get immediate gratification by being able to help somebody with food. You know, you can say, oh, wow, that was good. We helped people with food. But, you know, the reality is that long term, and uh, um, it, it's a lot more than food that people need to eat. How long is this going to go on? Um, are they going to have money? Are they going to have, you know, a place to live? Um, are they going to get evicted? Um, what kind of are they going to be protected at work in their homes and their living situations? So even though people appreciate getting the food assistance, a whole lot more needs to be done. And if we talk about farm workers as essential workers, we need to give them protections. Not just the protections, their rights. They need to have rights. They they need to be given dignity and agency, and that's what it's all about. We need to just you know uh, completely transform the way we treat farm workers in this country. Let me ask you, Jeannie, is there has the pressure on the immigration front lessened any? Is there still constant harassment from ICE? Or has that been backburnered through the all the complications of Corona? Well, we haven't seen, you know, as many. Um, well, there haven't been the ICE raids, and there haven't been as many cases of people being targeted by ICE and being picked up by ICE. But the policies have done the work of. Yeah, intimidating and terrifying um, farm workers and immigrants. Um, and it doesn't even mean that ICE needs to be out there on the street. The public charge, um, which has scared so many people from applying for services that they could be uh, eligible for, like food stamps and Medicaid. The public charge um, was in an order by the administration, and it really only affects about 700,000 immigrants in the country, but a lot of people don't know and they're afraid, so they won't um, apply for food stamps, for example, for their kids who are citizens, even though they should be eligible for it. And then other policies of, um, you know, that, um, that they hear about from the um, federal government about, um, you know, asylum, 
um, that the U.S. will not accept people for asylum cases anymore. And people have family members in other countries. They may be here. They may have even been here for a long time. But they have family members in other countries, and um, they might have family members that are sitting on the border right now waiting to get in. And then the whole issue with the DACA, which is really horrible. Um, we have so many young people, who, the uh, children of farm workers who are DACA recipients, and their lives are in the balance because they don't know what's going to happen with DACA, and their whole lives depend on what the Supreme Court says, what the administration does, um, because right now they can work and they can get a driver's license, but that could all change in a minute. And then they don't know if they're going to get sent home to their home countries. Some of them that don't even that have been here since they were infants don't even know how to speak the language of their home country. So, it's um it's 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 very rough. And um, but but I will say the people are amazingly amazingly strong. Um, they continue to go on. They continue to have hope. And um, it, they continue to have joy and beauty in their lives, um, and they deserve the dignity that uh, that all of us and the rights that all of us should be able to enjoy. So we, we need we need to see them as three-dimensional people that are going through these horrible times and yet still have hope and still have belief and still love their families and love their children and that's and and, and their faith that they hope is going to pull them through. Now, just recently there's been some stories in the news about the terrible impact of the cane burning and how much this has impacted the cities bordering the sugar farms. Now, it seems to me that what trouble the cities have, which is important, is is just a fraction of the impact this has on the farm workers. Um, has has any has there been any good fallout from this? Should we say larger societal look at the burning of the of the fields? Has this had any good impact on the environment that the our farm workers are living in? Well, I think the one thing that's happening is that there's been a lot of um, noise raised around the um, sugarcane burning, and Sierra Club has had a campaign against the sugarcane burning, and they have um, lifted up the fact that there are, in Brazil, they use a, um, a mulching system that prevents, that, that means that they don't have to burn the sugarcane, and I think that there's been a lot more attention to this. Even though they're continuing to do the do the burning of the sugar cane, I have a feeling that the the days are numbered, or maybe the years are numbered. I think, I mean, ideally it should end like immediately because every day that it happens, people are at risk and have health problems from sugar cane burning. But I do have hope that um, all all the attention to it. Um, the lawsuit that there's a lawsuit that um, uh, one figure has against um, the uh, sugarcane burning. Um, I feel like um, eventually, in the next few years, I think it's going to be um, banned. At least that's my hope. Um, 
it's just uh, absurd that with COVID and all the other disparities we know people of color have and farm workers have, to then add one more thing on top of it with the sugarcane burning. So I, I truly believe that it's not going to be too much longer before it will come to an end. Uh, Jeannie, let me ask you, for people who care, who are concerned, who want to help, how can they reach out? How could they contribute? How could they help in in even the smallest way to make the lives of these good people a little easier? How would you recommend? Well, very immediately, um, the Farm Worker Association has a GoFundMe, um, and I can send you the link um, Please to do. share. Please do. Um, and the Right now, the GoFundMe, um, the money from that is being used to help farm workers pay their utility bills and rent bills. Um, the maximum per family, just so that we can help as many families as possible, is $350 that we can help towards rent and utilities. And in one case, we helped a family pay Internet service so their child could do remote schooling or virtual schooling. Um, and so far, we've helped over 230 families in Florida. Oh, that's wonderful. And, uh, and we really hope that we can get more funds because um, we're concerned that if the HEROES Act doesn't get passed pretty soon, um, we're looking at even more dire conditions. So people can act immediately um, by contributing to the GoFundMe Um and then more long-term, they can support the passage of the HEROES Act. Um, there's quite a few bills right now that would take too long to, to go into. Sure. Um, but one bill that's really important, and this isn't directly related to COVID, but it is really important long-term, and that's a bill that's called the Protect America's Children from the Toxic Pesticides Um and it's uh, or it's also called FIFRA reform in the Children's Health Protection Act of 2020. Um, Senator Udall introduced the bill. He's retiring, and I think he wants this bill to be one of his last um, big uh, efforts. Um, but this bill is really, really important, um, and it has long-term implications for protecting farm workers and actually all of us. Um, because it bans some of the worst pesticides. Um, it requires um, pesticide labels to be in English and Spanish. And it also gives, um, it also ends the preemption because um, right now, if, for example, um, Palm Beach County wanted to uh, have special protections um, from pesticides, they can't do that because state law preempts them. But under the FIFRA reform, uh, progressive counties that wanted to have safer pesticide regulations in their county um, would be able would be able to do that under the new FIFRA reform act. Um, so we really want to get it passed. Um, uh, right now, it's it's pending in Congress because of all the other things going on. Um, but we hope people will look it up. Um, FIFRA reform and Children's Health Protection Act of 2020 and uh, stay abreast of that and do everything they can to support it. Now, is there also a, a Facebook site for Farm Workers Association? There is, yes. You can go to the Farm Workers Association of Florida, and we do have a Facebook page. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram. 
And if you follow our Twitter account, our Twitter Twitter handle is FWASL. Um, you can see a lot of our actions, a lot of um, petitions and call uh, um, action calls to action um, are posted on our Twitter page. Jeannie, thank you so very much for your time. Thanks for helping get the word out. Uh, in addition to your other myriad of millions of tasks, thanks so much from the bottom of my heart on this Labor Day week. These are people who labor so, so hard with so little appreciation for literally the food that's on our table. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you. And no justice, no peace. No we justice, need justice no for peace. everyone. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye, my dear. Bye-bye. Thank you. Peace. Be well. Bye-bye. Okay, you guys, check out the uh, link in the show notes to support the Florida Farm Workers Association. Uh, and, uh, you know, Janine mentioned that preemption, preemption's been a big thing with the uh, Coke-affiliated ALEC groups. And, of course, Florida has implemented big preemption uh, situations since uh, we tried to get earned sick time back in, what was it, 2012. Um, and it, that is a big problem. If you're listening anywhere outside of Florida, just be aware of these preemption bills as they come through the house, through your state ledge, and uh, you know, do what you have to do to make sure that that doesn't happen in your state. It's completely a tragedy. Okay, I want to really quick, uh, this week there was a... Another in a long line of uh, Russia race baiting, uh, red baiting, <laughs> red baiting stories. And this was a story that Noah Shackman did. He's the editor in chief at the Daily Beast. This piece was behind a paywall. Uh, it says exclusive leaked documents show the Russian troll farm trying to infiltrate and exploit Jacobin in these Times Magazine, Truth Out, and other left-wing publications. And of course, they uh, you know snitch tag in the in the piece there, and so you know of course folks uh, responded. The Jacobin editor said, uh, "Let me find it right here." He said, in our case, this extensive infiltration, quote unquote, that the Daily Beast is reporting literally consisted of one email sent to our submissions inbox written in SJW jargon. That's a uh, uh, social justice warrior. I blanked out for a second. Written in SJW jargon, wrongly addressed and clearly submitted to multiple outlets simultaneously that we deleted. Uh, and of course, Shackman didn't bother. I mean, like, I guess they just don't, you know, journalism rules just don't apply anymore. You don't actually get in touch with In These Times or Jacobin or any of the people who were uh, mentioned. You just you just go with the headline, uh, truth out being the other one. So 
So this has started another round of this whole, you know, we're getting ready to have an election and the polling numbers are not looking super great for for Joe Biden. Uh, you know, uh, the raw numbers don't tell the whole story because you've got to win the Electoral College and things are a lot more complicated than just, uh, you know, is somebody three points ahead or six points ahead in a state poll? That's that's not going to get you to where you need to be to be able to, you know, do the electoral college count, which we found out in 2016 uh, when we also found that the polling had been uh, quite uh, unreliable, very unreliable. There was... Uh, 538 said that there was, you know, some kind of absurd, like 98% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And, uh, and of course that, that was wrong now. So, so we've got in 2016, the Russiagate story started right at the first day of the democratic national convention was the very first story about Russiagate. It was one little teeny tiny piece. I'll dig it up. I don't have it right in front of me. But it was just meant, it just sort of mentioned, you know, mentioned that that something was afoot, you know. And between uh, the end of June in 2016 and to the election through, through November and then to Thanksgiving, all kinds of things started to transpire. And uh, one of the things that happened was a, uh, uh, a group, and this, this was on Thanksgiving Day 2016, Washington Post, above the, po- uh, above the fold, a group called Prop or Not uh, had issued a blacklist of media organ- left-wing media organizations. Truth Out was on there, I remember. Uh, and, uh, you were supposed to blacklist them because they were absolute, like, uh, according to proper not, uh, these, uh, um, Russian cutouts. Now, later we found that, um, in the 20, in 2017, there was a special election in, um, I think it was Alabama. So there was a... There was a a special election for the Senate, and there was this group called New Knowledge that got involved, and they they did this false flag situation where um, the Republican, they gave the Republican all of these uh, bot followers with you know, Russian sounding names and stuff and filled up their uh, social media with these uh, fake Russian accounts that were following the Republicans so that then the Democrat could turn around and say, look, our Republican opponent is completely supported by the Russians. So this sort of thing has completely happened before. And it was it wasn't just some little like rinky dink thing that was going on. It was actually funded by Reed Hoffman, the billionaire who co-founded LinkedIn. Um, and he brought in more Democratic consultants uh, to to uh, work on this. New knowledge was intimately connected with the campaign to claim that Russia had promoted left wing viewpoints on Twitter and Facebook. In 2018, the Senate Intelligence Committee commissioned new knowledge 
After they did all this, they commissioned New Knowledge and Graphica, another group, uh, to author a pair of reports on Russia, quote-unquote, disinformation. The New Knowledge report alleged that Russia had set up left-leaning pages that, quote, criticized mainstream established democratic leaders as corporatists or too close to neocons and promoted Green Party and Democratic Socialist themes. Now, you know, following the story that I that I just uh, talked about from the Washington Post about the grim conditions, uh, the refugee situation on iDrive in Orlando, uh, you don't need Russia to come along to tell you things are, are kind of going tits up in, in the United States. All right. We see it for ourselves. We're experiencing it for ourselves. Hyping the reports, Virginia Senator Mark Warner, the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, gasped. He said, incredible. These bombshell reports demonstrate how far Russia went to exploit the fault lines in our society and divide Americans in an attempt to undermine and manipulate our democracy with a small d. Just two days later, after reports, the Times detailed how new knowledge had deliberately set up exactly the types of inauthentic pages attributed to the Kremlin in its report on Russian meddling. All right. So the group that was actually in the Senate Intelligence Committee that was saying, oh, my God, we get this whole big Russia problem situation had already been caught doing a false flag that was setting someone up fakely as having Russian support. All right. Now, all of this is, has been memory hold, by the way, since then. Um, now, what happened in this Daily Beast situation is they, uh, they talk about a website called peacedata.org. And uh, the, uh, the claim here is that this, this website, peacedata.org, is affiliated. They feel like it's affiliated. Who knows? It's behind a paywall, and I'm certainly not going to pay to see a um, Daily Beast story, like you know, of this sort. If anybody has it, please send it to me. Uh, DMs are open on Twitter. Uh, uh, so they were saying that that Peace Data was backed by the Internet Research Agency. That's the IRA, and they they always say Kremlin backed. You know, like as if like in the United States, like 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 the White House would would, would get behind like like you know like the White House backed Breitbart News or you know White House backed you know Tucker Carlson you know Family Hour or whatever. You know, it's just absurd the way that they. Um, uh, go the extra mile to, you know, throw in the emotional language here. The lead author of the Graphica report. Now, remember, new knowledge and Graphica are, you know, kind of uh, uh, hand in hand in glove here. The Times story was based largely on a report by Graphica. Daily Beast was following up on the New York Times story. Uh, so it was based on a report by Graphica, which has already been implicated, um, uh, they're adjacent to the uh, new knowledge situation uh, in 2016, uh, which, along with new knowledge, was commissioned by the Senate to do this report. The lead author of the Graphica report cited last week by the Times was Ben Nemo, a former propagandist, the official term was press officer, for NATO, 
and a current fellow at the Atlantic Council, a CIA slash State Department front organization. The report claimed that PeaceData.org amplified leading left-wing websites, including the uh, Mint Press News, Common Dreams, The Intercept, and The Gray Zone. It linked to an article from uh, the World Socialist website, WSWS.org. Vindictive, and this was the the article, vindictive court rulings prove British state wants Assange dead. Like they, they, linked to that article and noted that, quote, the operation had a clear preference for groups that identified with socialism and, quote, opposed the mainstream Democratic Party as represented by Biden and Harris. (laughs) The Times report continued, the decision to espouse progressive positions and attack both center-left and right-wing politicians indicates an attempt to woo more left-wing audiences for future influence operations. Now, I want to point out what's going on here is these guys are, they're not about going after bots. They're not concerned about that. The bots are actually theirs. The bots are, you know, part of their operation. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to regulate your critical thinking. (laughs) That's what they want. That's what this is. This is aimed at your brain. It's not aimed at them bots. It's aimed at your brain. They want to make sure your brain doesn't get any kind of information that doesn't go through their filters or is seen through their lenses. You know, that is what is important to them. And it, 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 it's just transparently villainous to me. Uh, another thing I think that is really important is that all of these operations have focused on foreign policy. To them, it is super freaking important that anything having to do with foreign policy comes through with their filters and their their uh, uh, stamp of approval on it. Now, what the what this report that was reported on the New York Times and Daily Beast does not even attempt to do is prove that the site Peace Data was operated by the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, which was you know we're familiar with from the indictment you know back a couple of years ago. It doesn't it doesn't try to prove that the site was operated by them or any other organization connected with the Russian state. It simply asserted, alleged based on claims by the FBI, which have not been publicly, um, uh, and and claims by Twitter and Facebook. In keeping with their role as mouthpieces for intelligence agencies, neither the Times nor the Guardian, NBC News, or any other mainstream outlet has, uh, you know, looked into this or tried to do any of their own reporting. The only concrete demonstrable evidence of supposed Russian meddling in U.S. politics uh, just happens to be the operation that new knowledge, the false flag that, that new knowledge did in 2017. So this begs the question, was PeaceData.org set up in an operation similar to the one run by new knowledge with the aim of discrediting left-wing political opposition to the Biden-Harris campaign? As they're moving further right, as they're having problems actually connecting with voters, as they're having problem with their with their uh, polling with certain demographics, demographics that uh, Bernie Sanders excelled with, 
And these are just questions. I'm just asking questions. Um, here's another thing. You know that uh, Chelsea Clinton was uh, connected with um, the Daily Beast. You know, that was that was reported in 2016. Common knowledge arena is that the Daily Beast has a lot of uh, um, uh, Janine says she's calling in at 825. She will be here. Um, so Chelsea Clinton has has a relationship with the Daily Beast. Now, a couple of days ago, it was reported that Joe Biden is not too warm to the idea of Hillary Clinton being a surrogate for him, going out publicly and being a public campaign surrogate. He's just not that into her. Now, that makes me wonder a couple of things. So uh, there, there is no way that Hillary Clinton and Clinton consultants and Clinton world isn't involved in this election. So they're, they, those folks are already embedded in the campaign. Those consultants that worked on the Hillary's campaign either work for Kamala Harris's. Uh, they wouldn't have worked on Biden's. There's a, there's a longstanding Biden Clinton, you know, they're not super, super friendly. They bumped heads a lot when she was secretary of state and he was vice president. They did not agree on foreign policy. He actively worked to, you know, stop some of the things that she was doing. And of course, when you cross Hillary Clinton, then um, you get the, uh, you, you get put on the Clinton's, enemies list so you know they're not working together there's there's not a concerted effort that i see for the um clinton world consultants and the obama world consultants because essentially what you have with uh uh kamala harris and uh joe biden is you have hillary clinton consultants clinton world consultants from kamala's world and Obama consultants working on the Biden campaign. And they're not, they're just not gelling. The whole thing isn't gelling. You know, you've got people who have been in power uh, struggles now for more than a decade and people who don't like each other and people who don't trust each other. And so you got people running all kinds of wild shit behind the scenes. And I believe (laughs) From what I'm seeing here and from what I know about how Hillary Clinton's campaign got involved in this whole Russiagate thing in the first place, it it, it, it wouldn't surprise me. This is my speculation, completely speculating, that, uh, that, that these stories placed in the New York Times and the Daily Beast are uh, Clinton world's way of contributing to the Biden campaign. Since Hillary Clinton can't go out there and be a surrogate, uh, one-on-one, you know, you know, be a be a face of the campaign or talk up the campaign. Biden's just not that into her. Um, the, this is her contribution. This is what she would like to bring to the table is her ability to pick up the phone or have her people pick up the phone and whisper in the ears of a reporter or two, and you know, place these wild freaking stories. And, you know, I just want to point out that what's going on here is uh, it's not just annoying and stupid. I mean, because it is annoying, stupid, Uh, but it's 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 very dangerous Uh, and it's it's 
done a lot of damage since 2016. Yasha Levine, you should subscribe to his substock. Yasha Levine is a fabulous uh, writer and researcher, did an amazing book that everybody needs to read called Surveillance Valley, which is about the history of the internet. And if you haven't read it, uh, you're, you don't understand how it works. Let me just say that it is that important. So Yasha Levine on his substack, he, uh, he threw this out there after this, all this happened this week with the New York times and daily beast. And he says on blacklist, and Russia hacking American democracy. Um, he says, it's been the same story over and over and over again. You'd think that the bubble world would deflate at some point, but no, it just keeps going. And what he's done here is he's given a short introduction to a piece that he wrote back when the proper not story came out in Washington Post on Thanksgiving 2016 above the fold uh, so that everybody would be talking about it at dinner. And um, it was a little bit of introduction to this. And it was the last piece of this that just really caught my attention. He says, at the time when all of this happened, you know, the proper not story Thanksgiving, at the time it seemed crazy and dangerous and triggered an organized campaign to push back against the smears. So people with all of these uh, that were blacklisted, uh, they were like, hey, man, you know, we don't want to get cut off from from Google search words and this, that and the other. So they they tried to get the Washington Post to retract the story. And, of course, it didn't work. And he says, looking back on that now, that effort to force a retraction seems quaint and so innocent. These kinds of smears are totally routine now. They've been completely normalized. Other than maybe a few snarky tweaks, no one tries to bat them down anymore. Forget holding the news media accountable. What does that even mean these days? And so I was reminded about uh, something that I wrote in a piece. I wrote a piece for the Florida Squeeze uh, called The Washington Post Promotes Secret Group Calling for an Existential Threat to Independent Media. And so I was writing about this from the standpoint of we've got an existential threat here. Uh, uh, the proper not was saying that these left-wing organizations posed a, a, an existential threat to America, you know, by, uh, you know, not towing the line with some official narrative. And I would like to, you know, just kind of close this out by saying that, the existential threat was always and forever um, to the left-wing media. It was always intended to push left-wing media out of existence because left-wing media is an existential threat to corporate media. Uh, if anyone is out there interrupting the narrative that corporate media is putting out there, you are then therefore an existential threat to a very, very large corporation. And I should remind you that these media corporations aren't just doing media. The six of them that own everything is not just media that they do. They are industrialists. They're, 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 they're defense contractors. This is, this is the blob. This is the, the you know, Moloch. And, uh, and, and so this is them attempting to tamp down any kind of counter 
narrative. That is how threatening it is that people ha- you know, can think for themselves. Well, they absolutely do not want you to think for yourself. This is a war for uh, rental space in your brain. And don't forget that. It's not about Russian bots. It is about uh, controlling what it is that you think and I think and everybody thinks. And uh, that, I think we've got the justice report coming up. Hold on. What's this? And I bet we've got Janine here on the phone. And uh, how are you doing, Janine? I'm fine. Uh, I'm waiting for my interview subject to call in. Um, I have an interview set up with a Expect Us activist who started out actually very young in Ferguson. His name's Elijah Foggy. So I just gave him some additional instructions. So we're, you see another phone number, then that's Elijah. So we're waiting for him to call in. I think I've got Elijah right here. There was a little bit of noise on the line, so I muted him real quick. Let's see if we've got him back. Hello? Hello, Hello. Elijah. Hey, Janine. Thank you all all for having me. Thank you. Actually, Elijah, that was our our, uh, producer, Brooke. Um, We're going to just start in, okay? So I'm going to... I'm going to introduce everybody. This is Elijah Foggy. He is a St. Louis. He is a St. Louis activist, and I want to give our audience some background. Okay, Elijah Foggy has been connected with Ferguson and with a, a human rights group called Expect Us, fighting for racial equality. Um, and for that reason, I call I consider him, along with Reverend Gray, to be a human rights activist. He's affiliated with the same group as Reverend Daryl Gray and our new congresswoman to be, Cori Bush, and that's Expect Us. Elijah has also worked with another St. Louis human rights activist, someone known to the community of activism and well-loved, namely Mama Cat. Uh, Mama Cat, and her, her real name is Kathy Daniels, but Mama Cat has made it her mission in life to feed the hungry and help find shelter for our unhoused citizens, no matter how unbearably hot it is in the summer or in the depth of winter when it's zero degrees outside. Um, and this is another face to these, these activists fighting for racial equality. They are human rights activists, and more often than not, that has been that aspect has been ignored by the corporate mainstream media. I will not ignore it. Um, Elijah has also stood up bravely to the rampant police brutality in our nation. Remember, it was here in St. Louis County that the the disgrace of Ferguson came to a boil. Before Portland, Mm -hmm. before Chicago, before Kenosha, there was Ferguson. For his role Mm -hmm. as a human rights activist, Elijah is applauded. Welcome to our show, Elijah. So I'm going to start. Well, thank you. That's a lot of praise, man. That's a lot of praise. Well, I tell it like I see it, believe me. Um, so the first question, I've got several questions. I want to get through this because I want our audience to get a good idea of what's really going down, okay? So mm-hmm. the obvious thing, very quickly, you know, I know you're 19 years old. What brought you to action? Yes, ma'am. Um, it's, a, it's funny you ask that because um, uh, the person who brought me into activism 
is actually mm-hmm. another person who is widely recognized in the community. Um, hmm. she, uh, she, her name is Asia Corrigan. That's my mom. Um, she does. She actually introduced me to activism in itself. Um, I was 13 at the time. This was mm-hmm. around the time that Michael Brown died, and there was that uh, Ferguson uprising. Um, right. My mom asked me. She was like, Elijah, um, you know, I'm going to go out and you know protest. You're welcome to come with me. It's really dangerous. You don't have to come if you don't want to. And knowing me, I'm airy spirit. That fighter in me was like, yes, I'm coming out. So mm-hmm. um, she t- took me out to that first protest, and ever since then, I fell in love. And um, just the feeling of knowing that I'm standing up for something for what's right and um, uplifting my family, my my people, is it's really fulfilling for me. Right. So I'm going to kind of skip around. I'm going to try and get this, make this as well-rounded as I can. Uh, We're only going to spend a little time on this next question because I don't want it to be the central focus, but our audience doesn't really have a whole lot of context because our audience is actually in another state. Uh You've been attacked by police on more than one occasion. There was the incident in Florissant this past July, which is also a sundown town, much like Ferguson. Uh, And you're Uh in the news. You also traveled to the Missouri State Capitol, Jefferson City, for a lobby day that ended, again, with more police brutality, common tape. So let's start with Florissant incident first, if you can discuss what happened, and then we'll start, then we'll talk about Jeff City. So in Florissant, the Florissant went, it started great. Um, people, mm-hmm. we, we started the protest in Florissant. It was, it was good. People, a lot of people showed up for this one. And um, we started in front of the police station. So we had mm-hmm. a plan that we were going to start in front of the police station and protest there. And, um, and then eventually the cops were going to move us back on the other side of the sidewalk. So mm-hmm. we protested there in front of the police station after about 30 minutes. The cops had enough. They came and snatched up three people. Um, that's when we was like, we had to move back to the to the to the entrance. So we moved back to the mm-hmm. entrance, um, and uh, that's when and we we thought we were safe there. And that's when they rushed us to get back onto the the sidewalk. So while we're on the mm-hmm. sidewalk, um, we thinking we're safe. We're on the sidewalk. We are we're on public right. property. They have no grounds right. to arrest us. So. Right. I'm talking to my a good friend of mine, um, just talking about like what's going on and how I'm sick and tired of having to come out there every day to fight this. Why can't things just change mm-hmm. for the better? And mm-hmm. as I was um, talking to my friend, a police, five police officers, five, yes, five, came were creeping creeping up behind me, and I didn't know they were behind me until somebody said, "Watch, watch out!" And um, by then it was too late. I tried to run, but one of them, both two officers grabbed my arm. Mm. Yeah. And so um, two officers um, grabbed my arms and um, and a third um, grabbed me around my waist and uh, proceeded to body slam me. So mm-hmm. while I was being body slammed, um, one officer had his knee on my back. Another officer had um, uh, an elbow on my face, crashing my face into the to the asphalt. Um, mm. And 
after after that, um, another one proceeded to um to arrest me. Now I like to note that I wasn't able to um I wasn't able to get on my uh, my stomach at first. So in order mm-hmm. to uh, um, make me flip on my stomach, they aggressively flipped me over, and that's how I got uh, abrasions on my legs, on the back of my legs, that took a few mm-hmm. weeks to heal. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they I, even though I was compliant to everything that they um, they were telling me to do, they proceeded to forcefully arrest me. Okay. All right. So let's talk about what happened in Jefferson City. My understanding is it was, wasn't just a protest. It was meant to be a lobby day. People were going to go there, walk the halls, and demand some answers from the, you know, the state legislature. So, and I, and I saw the tape. There, there was the cops were slam, body slamming people. What happened there? So, in Jefferson City, um, we came up. It was about thirty or forty of us. It wasn't a big crowd. Um, mm-hmm. We started to protest in, on front of the, um, mm-hmm. the justice building's grounds. And um, we mm-hmm. started the protest there, and mm-hmm. we, um, we we proceeded to march up and down Jefferson City, the streets um, in front of that justice center, like in, in the shopping area and around to the other uh, law buildings on the mm-hmm. right. Um, mm-hmm. And while we were protesting there, um, we were we were like, you know what, we are, we're going to do what we always do, and that's do a moment of silence. So. Um, one of the leaders of Expect Us, um, you know, declared that we were going to do an eight-minute moment of silence. And while we were mm-hmm. doing a moment of silence, that's when the police officers um, started warning us, telling us to um, to get out of the street. And, of course, we're doing a moment of silence. We can't just up and um, move. You know, that would be disrespectful to the mm-hmm. to the ones who passed. So right. we, um, we elected not to get up. And because we elected okay. not to get up, that's when they moved into the street and started, you know, just snabbing us. And that's when I got arrested. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to move on to something else now. Uh, Uh The questions are a little long, so just kind of, you know, to give a little context, because, again, um, most of our audience is actually in Florida. So after the world watched the police brutality and prosecutorial abuse in Ferguson, the the mainstream media focus was on any violence that occurred during this episode. Mainstream media focused on, once again, the obvious with practically zero context. The cumulative yes. effects of daily racist aggressions against communities of color was barely paid lip service, while Black Lives Matter and expectus activists were defamed as, and, and slandered as violent and dangerous, playing into one of the oldest racist tropes out there. Against such a biased backdrop, how do you challenge this prejudice narrative? So, so the narrative, could you reiterate what that narrative is? I didn't quite catch what it was. Okay, sorry about it. Basically what it is is that mainstream media has focused so heavily on any, uh, any incidents of violence, even if it was from uh-huh. an outsider. And yeah. when there was violence, there was zero context, all right? So, for instance, yeah. they slandered Reverend Gray when he didn't actually do anything wrong. And that this mm-hmm. built up over time. And basically this idea that Black Lives Matter activists are violent and dangerous, that's just playing into this old racist slur or trope that, you know, minorities are dangerous. So how do you battle this prejudice narrative? Do you have any ideas? 
Well, the the way we battle it is, you know, we have to come to grips with the fact that mainstream media is always going to find a way to direct fear towards uh, African Americans. That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there's actually a word for it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the proper term for that is fear mongering, is it not? Yes, it is. So that's what the mainstream media tries to do is fear monger. Um, the more they can, you know, make it seem like we're African-Americans are criminals, the more they can dehumanize us and justify police killing us. Um, the more they can dehumanize us and justify the fact that they, and justify the way they treat us and um, the lack of assistance that's given to us. So I think the way that, Sorry if I was rambling. I think the way that That's okay, um, the way that we can stop that is, you know, they want to they want to use um, the media. Well, the media is also um, the media isn't just what you see on headlines, right? The media isn't just what right. you see on um, news shows. You know, the biggest mm-hmm. media is social media. So, you know, if we really mm-hmm. want to reach people, uh, we really want to start with social media. You know, getting the right photographers out. Um, mm-hmm. uh, po- po- um, posting photographs about what actually community looks like and what the things that we are doing to influence our community in a positive right. way. Um, get right. on Facebook lives and um, maybe capturing um, a homeless outreach, feeding the homeless, or capturing right. um, the, commu- the the gatherings that goes on in these protests. Because it's not just protests. Right. It's a way for communities right. to gather and to, to mingle and just get to know each other. You know, right. we're a family at the end of the day. So, I know. But, you know, media doesn't <laughs> capture that. The media doesn't capture that. So right. if Actually, we can just you, get you people can... on Facebook and Instagram um, documenting the, the friendliness that goes on, it will really impact, have an impact. Right, right. Actually, you touched on my next question. Okay. Mainstream corporate media, they've made it a rite of passage to misrepresent, frankly, slander and defame racial equality activists. So I want to flip the script. And have you talked mm-hmm. specifically about some of the humanitarian work done by these same activist groups, such as Expect Us, and of course, St. Louis institutions such as, especially Mama Cat and Reverend Gray? Mm-hmm. Discuss, discuss some of this outreach you guys do on a daily on a daily basis, really. So the outreach that I do, um, mm-hmm. and not just me, what my mom does. Like I said, my mom mm-hmm. is very well known in the volunteer community. She. Right now, she has um, her own um, her own organization called Saving Sacred Spaces, and um, basically, she what she does is finds rundown, neglected pieces of history in St. Louis and puts in the work in the slant tears and renovates them. And right now, her oh, wow. big project is is working on a Washington Park Cemetery. So, um, okay. it's a it's a cemetery near Lambert Airport that has been neglected. And, you know, stones are overturned, graves that are misplaced. Yeah. You know, it's we found one crazy. tomb. We found one tomb. Like, the, 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 the place who was buried was 20 feet away from where the tombstone was, you know. Oh so God. she's doing a lot of work with renovating that, and she's always looking for new volunteers. Um, what I do every Thursday is I work with Mama Cat and the Pot Bangers, as you touched on earlier. Yeah. Um, Tell our audience she, about pop bangers and what you do there. Well, well, I mean, what can I say about the pop bangers? What can I say about Mama Cat? I mean, she's been doing. Well, this our for audience six doesn't years. know. That's the thing. 
Oh, the art. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Um, I I say what can I say because there's not enough you can say about her. I mean, she is um a big big leader in the movement. She has been mm-hmm. feeding homeless in St. Louis for six years. She's mm-hmm. she um what what her and her her organization does the pot makers is we get we have a kitchen where we cook the food so it's handmade mm-hmm. food. And then mm-hmm. after we cook it, we go out and feed the homeless on the street, wherever wherever they may be. Yeah. Not only that, but during winter time, we do winter outreach. That's when we have coats do- donated, pants donated, socks donated, hot hands donated, and we go mm-hmm. and donate those to homeless shelters who need that winter outreach supply. Mm-hmm. So what the Pop Angers does is uh, a lot of homeless outreach. Um, and another thing that I love that Mama Cat did was. She is such a people person that she created a whole mm-hmm. organization where everybody can feel welcome. You know, you mm-hmm. can have what well, I've seen. I've seen regular average Joes conversating with homeless people, you know, like mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're not homeless. You know what I'm saying? We don't treat homeless people like they're just homeless. We treat them like regular human beings. And we love exactly. them like they're family. And we, everybody mm-hmm. in the pop bangers are also family. And that's what I love that Mama Cat did. She brings people together. And look in her cooking. Oh, my God. Her cooking can bring together. Oh, I know. I, mean, <laughs> I know. Her cooking alone. Her cooking alone. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so that's, yeah. that's uh, homeless outreach, uh, a mom with the renovation, renovating um, sacred spaces. And what I've been really trying to get into is canvassing because the main thing, that we can do that's that's the, that's I think is the main impact that we can have is changing things mm-hmm. within the system. So mm-hmm. paying attention to the people that we elect in office who represent us. So right. I've been trying to do a lot of canvassing to um to you know door knocking, handing out pamphlets to um right. to promote those leaders that we want in the system. That's something I've really been trying to get into. Yes, exactly. Okay, so. And that's, I wanted our, because our audience, they're based in Florida, but they're in some other states too. So they needed to understand, they needed to realize that Mama Cat, what you guys have been doing, that basically the activists in Black Lives Matter and Expect Us have been doing a lot of humanitarian outreach and at their own expense. That's something that's a story that does not come out and it needs to come out. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little more. There's been a lot of misinformation, a lot of bad information regarding the multitude of opinions on the defund police movement. There's a whole mix of theories regarding how this should work, okay? I know everybody has slightly different opinions. What theory do you favor and why? What theories do I say that one more time? How would defund police look like to you? Like, oh, would it okay. Be um, just disbanding the police? Would it be reducing them and say sending monies into community outreach instead? Um, that's we've got a, a couple of stories on that. So, we believe that the police, our taxpaying dollars, should not be going as much to the police as they're going right now. Um, mm-hmm. We want to take that money that's been so infused in the police system. And redistribute mm-hmm. that to areas that are where it's needed in the lesser neighborhoods. So we're talking about having, you know, maybe a big brother, big sister, a program, you know, mm-hmm. where mentors right. can mentor a young child, you know, teach mm-hmm. them 
you know, how to balance the checkbooks. Teach them about the, the, the secrets to life, you know, and how to mm-hmm. be, how to, how to grow, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Having, you know, a lot of, a lot, I know a lot of schools in the hood um, that don't have, don't even have sports teams. And, which mm-hmm. is very saddening to see because sports are a great way to get away from crime. I mean, some mm-hmm. of these kids, they grow up, their dad sells crack, their mom sells crack, their dad probably does crack, their mom probably does crack. They are bred in this this, this thug mentality, okay? And mm-hmm. a lot of the ways that they could use to escape that life are sports. And the fact right. that some of these schools don't even have sports teams as a way to escape the, right. the, the crime that happens in the neighborhood is very heart, um, heart-sickening. Um, and, and lastly, I would say health care. I mean, it's a problem that we don't even have hospitals in lesser privileged neighborhoods. We have urgent right. care. Yeah. <laughs> we have urgent care. It's we true. don't have hospitals. So that's that, and that's messed up in itself because we actually need decent health care and not no urgent care, you know, quick fixer up, clean up health care. Right. You know? Right. Um, so having our money allocated to having hospitals in lesser privileged neighborhoods is a must. So, and we also want to point out the fact that funding to police, the amount of money that we're, um, more police isn't the, 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 the solve, solving the issue. It's not going to solve the issue. More police right. isn't going to um, give my little black brothers and sisters a decent education. More police mm-hmm. is not going to reduce the amount of homeless population that's in America right now. Right. More police... Right. It's not going to stop my my uncle who just went back to jail six for six more years from doing from selling drugs. More police isn't going to stop. It's going to more police isn't going to give him the opportunity that that he needs in order to not have to sell drugs in order to feed his family. So right. when we say defund the police and people try to say, well, what, what we need police. Um, we have police and look what they're doing to us right now. Yeah. So. And, and we've done we've done a few shows on that, and you know, basically, I, my understanding is that a lot of activists are saying, cut the funding, cut some of the funding, maintain some of the department, but redirect the monies towards education and healthcare and social services and activities for the kids, and maybe even, uh, you know, helping small businesses start out, things of that nature. So, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of misunderstanding about that, and that's kind of done on purpose, I suspect. So, you know, it's one of those things where I really, I, I'm glad you were able to come on to the show, all right? I wanted people to get a new idea of what's really happening there because mm-hmm. there's been this this real misinformation out there, all right? Um, I've seen myself, you know, I, I know Mama Cat, I've seen what's been going on down there, and, um, you know, it, it does a terrible disservice to slander a movement that really is doing the work of human human rights and kindness. That's, that's so, what I see when I look at it. I I would like to say this, if, if I may mm-hmm. say one more thing. Sure. Um, People like to slander Black Lives Matter activists as being radicals. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all they do is break and burn, break stuff, burn and loot. Um, you know, 
act like criminals, basically. Um, but how many of those people who say those rumors actually come out and see for themselves what we're about? How many of those people, you know, on the media who like to fear monger and paint us as criminals actually came out to see how we're making a difference? Because I guarantee if they actually took their lazy butts off their asses, pardon my language, um, and went out to a protest, they would be filled with warmth and joy because we're not criminals at all. We uplift each other. We don't say we're a family for no reason. When we say Black Lives Matter, that's, that means we stand behind all the black brothers and sisters that are being um, victimized by the system. We stand with black people. We're not saying no lives matter. We're just emphasizing black lives matter because black lives don't matter right now. Right. We're not criminals. We're not radicalists. You know, if you came to a protest, what would you see? You would see people playing rock, paper, scissors. You would see people, you know, have a little rap battles. You would see people um, meeting new people that they probably had never seen before. You see friendships mm -hmm. being made. You see connections right. being made. You see partnerships that could last a lifetime being made out here. Because when we say we're doing humanitarian work, that's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're doing stuff to save humanity. Yeah. We're doing stuff to see people grow instead of seeing people with their foot on their necks. So right. those people who like to slander protests, the, those people who are listening to this radio show right now, you know, who haven't been to a protest, like, just come out and see what we're about. Just come out and see what a march is like. Come out and see what volunteer mm -hmm. opportunities are like. And I guarantee you'll meet a lifelong friend. I guarantee your heart will grow ten times bigger than it already is. I guarantee mm -hmm. you will have a whole new viewpoint on the future of the human race. I swear to you. Well, thank you, Elijah. I'm going to have a few concluding words, okay? Uh, you are right. much appreciated. I want you to stay on and listen. Human rights activists like Reverend Daryl Gray, Mama Cat, and Elijah Foggy have been working feverishly to warn the rest of us about what can only be called a growing, ascendant neo-Nazism. These activists and colleagues have put their reputations, freedoms, and lives on the line. They know how vile the stench of racism is, and make no mistake, Nazism, like white supremacy, is both, they're both about racism, and they know the danger of allowing this social cancer to remain. It is not hyperbole to suggest that white supremacists are the equivalent of Nazis. Hitler based his genocide on the racist theory of eugenics. Hitler sought to create a super white race, which he called Aryans. His mass murder of 11 million, of which 6 million were Jews, was termed in the Nazi literature as a race war implemented to extinguish any non-white person, and Jews were regarded as a mixed race, a.k.a. in Hitler's terms, a mud race. So calling out white supremacists as Nazis is not inaccurate. The black community has warned us all, all of us for decades. Finally, some white allies have become what the kids call woke, and they are shocked by the brutal behavior of police, brutality that too closely resembles the Nazi brown shirt thugs. Through these new, new white allies, this is a new revelation to the black community. It's just another Friday. And I thank you, Elijah, for appearing on our show. You are a breath of fresh air. Have a great evening. And Everybody still there? Janine? <laughs> yes. I muted, I muted him for just a second, but he, but he should be back on. Oh, okay. um, 
Sorry, guys. So I muted myself. My bad. My bad. It was a little loud in my it's, environment. It's all right, Elijah. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, for having me. It's been a real big pleasure. I hope you both have a good one. Thank you, you Elijah. Elijah. God bless. So Great piece, Janine. Thank you. He is a breath of fresh air. And I myself have been to enough protests down in Ferguson like practically every day um, that, at least before COVID anyway, I've seen the work of Mama Cat and some of the others. And this is something that is never talked about. But they're doing humanitarian, what some people call church work. And I wanted our audience to understand that. So that's my Well, that's super important. Thank you so much, Janine. Uh, we will we will see you again next week. And guys, don't forget that Janine is also doing the Environmental Justice Report on Thursdays mm-hmm. at eight o'clock Eastern, seven o'clock Central Time. Do not miss that. Uh, and if you're signed up for uh, if you're subscribed through like iTunes, then you're automatically going to get those on Friday morning or just right after the show. They'll, they'll drop. And uh, we will, uh, Janine, we'll talk to you next week. And I got a couple more minutes here. I just want to wrap some stuff up. I'm putting the links in the show notes for some of the articles. I want to make sure that, you know, you guys should reach out at, um, reach out and talk to me on Twitter. Any old time, my DMs are open uh, and I, I um, check for DMs for, you know, people who I don't necessarily follow. So hit me up with story ideas or ideas for um, interviews, content, anything like that. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, we got a lot of work ahead of us. There's uh, a lot of stuff to do before the election, and we've got some amazing races going on in Florida right now. And I want to bring more of that information to you in the coming weeks. So hold tight, and you know, we're just going to ride this out, and uh, we got the rest of September. October, and then we go to November, and maybe our long national nightmare will be over. We shall see. But I will see you guys next week. Thank you for listening. Love you guys. Bye.